You're listening to The Razor's Edge. The Razor's Edge is an investing podcast. Your hosts are Akram's Razor, an investor and trader with decades of experience in markets, and me, Daniel Schwarzman, who has been focused on the market as a career for the past decade. We take investing ideas or themes we're interested in and break them down, or we speak with expert guests to get a wider understanding of a given topic. To get episodes of The Razor's Edge, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get podcasts. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you have a chance, or share this show with a friend. You can also check out our work on Seeking Alpha under our respective names, or reach us on Twitter at, at Daniel Shortman or at Akram's Razor. Our standard disclaimer and disclosure. The Razor's Edge is a Shortman Studios production. The views discussed belong to either Akram or me, respectively, or to our guests when we have them. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. We'll disclose any positions in any stocks discussed at the end of the podcast or during our introduction to the given episode. This week on The Razor's Edge, we talk about the Archegos blow-up that closed out March. A mirror image of the GameStop and Melvin Capital dynamics in January, the highly leveraged strategies Bill Huang used at Archegos seemed to work great until they didn't. How does something like that happen? What does it say about big moves in stocks you might own? And what does it say about the market as a whole? We do our best to sort out the wreckage and provide a lookout amidst an ongoing bull market. Before we begin, we recorded this on Friday, April 2nd, so we surely missed the reporting that came out afterwards and maybe some of the stuff beforehand. For disclosures, I'm long PagerDuty, Twitter, and Stitch Fix. Akram is long PagerDuty, Twitter, Workday, and GoPro. Okay, let's get after it. All right, Akram. So the story, I think, for the last part of the quarter was the Archegos blowup. And it's an interesting story. It, it echoes GameStop a little bit. It's like sort of the flip side of GameStop, which started the quarter. But I, there are lots of interesting sort of side loops, threads to pull from that. What stands out to you? What, what's your takeaway? What's your, what have you learned or what have you come away thinking about this since it blew up a week or two ago? Yeah, that's a, actually, I like how you set that up, to tell you the truth, because it does kind of, it is like the other half of Game Stonk, right? <laughs> and, because uh, nobody, nobody ever really, except for Melvin Capital, it's like the it's the reverse mirror of Melvin Capital, sort of. Is the way I think about it. So look, I mean, we don't have like you know, this is going to go down. This is going to be a great fucking book. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. Whoever ends up writing this story and figuring out what was going on, but we can just you know hypothesize. And I think this is interesting for us because we had Andrew on here just recently. We talked about Viacom and Discovery. Again, it was one of those, it was Viacom and Discovery were were exhibiting price action that like kind of, you know, made you lose to a certain degree faith in markets to be able to explain things like that, right? I mean, GameStop has been, GameStop has been squarely put into this, let's call it little box of... Michael Burry, Ryan Cohen, the whole deep value investing, and then this like Reddit phenomenon, right? And e-commerce and a shift to digital. We understand that where it traded 
and where it presently trades probably continues to be nonsensical. But people have been willing to discount that as like, there's a bunch of things here and Reddit and Robinhood that drove it that like, they, they don't, they're not spilling over into the rest of the market. I mean, even if you go back to our Jamie interview, though, like he did make points that like, once you start undermining the integrity of markets, you kind of open yourself up to certain risks, right? Like when, and he was talking about potentially Russia or China and like the shit that, that you could do with destabilizing markets. But on the flip side, the general view is that this is kind of an isolated incident. Now, I did have spillover then, and there was degrossing with Melvin in those couple of days. And we saw, what do you want to call it? The knock-on effect in some related names. Let's call them like heavily shorted retail, right? Express, Bed Bath & Beyond. And then there was those weird moves like BlackBerry and Nokia and whatever you want to call it, vintage investing, <laughs> like particularly looking for businesses that have underperformed and you know, gun in the stock. Now, against that, against that backdrop, we actually now have some tangible evidence of a fund that was buying a, a group of names. In this case, let's call it the ones at least that we know about: Viacom, Discovery, Baidu, which I, you know, for me is a nice revisit to a name that I'd spent a lot of time on. Bet Noir. And, yeah, exactly, and 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 GSX. As someone who who knows a lot of these active short sellers, like that name has been very front and center for the last twelve months, and all of them. The one takeaway with it, and you know, full disclosure, I've not messed with GSX at all, but the one takeaway from it has been they're all unanimously in agreement, which you very rarely see in a space like that. That this thing is just a fraud. They do not believe that there's a legitimate business behind it. Whether or not that's the case, who cares? But They've been so in agreement on it, and it's been such a painful trade that I, I doubt anyone is still in it or anyone has made any money except on the long side, because you had to get particularly lucky with your timing to catch the two times it's kind of like flash crashed. But if you took the names GSX, Baidu, like the sleepy you know, search engine, out of favor, China tech stock that had not performed, okay, it's like one of the only ones. And two media companies from the United States, one in, in uh, let's call it reality-driven content, and the other, you know, you know, famous old conglomerate that is viewed as kind of a dinosaur, Sumner Redstone's baby, Viacom CBS, with assets like MTV and Paramount, et cetera, which a lot of question marks have lingered around, like the failure to adapt to this new competitive world of your Netflixes and Disney Pluses and whatever you want to call it. like MTV has probably been essentially replaced by, in many people's mind by like YouTube and social media companies, right? Right, right. Like Instagram, influencers, uh, TikTok. So when you think about that, TikTok is definitely uh, in that category, being kind of like the new MTV and, and this dynamic in the space where people... And I think the stock was trading, you know, at the start of the year. I don't know. I mean, that's also some decent leverage issues concerned, but like it was trading at like 10, 11 times earnings. So there have been people who had highlighted these assets, potentially interesting. But like the point is, in all four of them, they share like one's a fraud, two are secular, out of favor, let's call them disrupted dinosaurs, is the perception. Value traps, yeah. Yeah, and the third one is like some, but the third one was like Baidu was somewhere in between, right? Like, like not good enough in maps, 
uh, not excited about an AI, a group of people who like maybe are skeptical on their investments and things like Aichi and whatever, like not Alibaba, not Tencent, but also not like on the other extreme, like a GSX. And for someone like me who'd walked into that because they've done all the AI investing, like we got what's his name in, in, in the Slack who's long Baidu and like the stock doubled, right? And he's like, my Baidu is performing great. And I'm happy for him. But for someone like me looking at it, it's like, well, I mean, like, why has Baidu for the last like 60 days been been a name that people want to buy all of a sudden? Yeah, I feel like that's what's from the bystander level. And maybe we circle back to this again later. But that's the hardest thing is because Viacom and Discovery, for example, they were sort of a value trap. There was a story there. There were leverage, like you said. And then there was some, there was enough fundamental news to make you think that might be the driver. But ultimately, at some point, you get so caught up in the fact that your stock has gone up three, four, five X, and you might lose sight. I mean, this happened to me in the earlier round a little bit, and it's, again, a small position, but Stitch Fix was the same sort of thing. It got caught up in that first short squeeze wave, and you have to... Yeah, that was a weird one as well, right? But that, I feel like that one had like some Twitter dynamics to it. There was, they had a good quarter, but then, yeah, they got caught up. I, I mean, I feel like it was somebody who was just going after short interest, whether it was Correct. Wall Street bets or the leverage funds behind it or whatever else. So it, I think it was similar. It's just that, I mean, that's what seems to be, whether it's Archegos or whoever seems to have uncovered a way to scale that sort of strategy. You know, that seems to be the common thread. Yeah, so it, that's where I think, I think things get interesting, right? So... What we know about Archegos is that they had a massive position in Viacom and GSX and Discovery, not as massive as seen in Baidu, but from a percentage of the economic value of the companies, between 20 and almost as high as 40%, it seemed. Of the actual company, like either of the float or of the actual company. Yes, through total return swaps, right? right. So... They're not holding them in name, but you see from the bank's disclosures, the banks all of a sudden had like very large positions in these in some of these names, and that's where things have have gotten interesting, right? So the the banks got exposed through these derivative contracts to one client who seemed to have been almost painting their own tape and 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 the names they're in, right? And when I say that, I mean like they're buying the stock more and more aggressively on the way up. To the point that they're trying to corner a market in a name, so to speak. Now, why why would you do that, and what's going on? And that goes back to GameStop. So, I think it's very, very plausible that this investor, who has clearly done well for himself over the years, it's his family office, had accumulated a large degree of wealth, benefited significantly under COVID. With I mean, his, his willingness to bet big and. Like he saw what happened in the market in these names in January, Bed Bath and Beyond, and and uh, AMC, and GameStop, and he was like, "I can do this. I can do this, and I can do this in let's say three names where I think my downside is limited." So he found stocks that were really had not like you know had gone nowhere. Like the level of analysis that had to be going into it, gone nowhere under COVID, where you can kind of marry some new narrative to them because they're old economy. And that have been structurally great shorts for five, six years. And this goes back to like the conversation we're having with Andrew when he was on, like, you know, the other side of the Netflix trade, 
had been Viacom, Discovery, and the likes. So, and Baidu, for example, on the Chinese side, where like maybe he's like electric car, maybe this, uh, you know, I can, can find something that I can get in my head around excited wise. But by the way, I'm paying next to nothing, and the, the stock is well off where it traded several years ago. Yeah, you can spin the narrative. You can, it's almost. I don't want to ascribe motivation, but it's almost like you can tell you can create the narrative trap around whatever or the front around whatever the actual underlying price dynamics are. Correct. And that's where you like when you look at this, once this was exposed, you look at the charts of the names and you're like, oh, my God, this is exactly what he was doing. <laughs> These four names were trading the same way over the same time period. Like if you look at the moves in all of them, you know, they start in late January. Like this trade was put on after GameStop, AMC, Bed Bath & Beyond, BlackBerry, whatever. So to put that trade on then, it's almost undeniable that he was influenced by what he witnessed in those names in January. And he's literally, what's important when you're trying to do this is you need to find the names that have not moved yet. So like he found a bunch of names that hadn't moved yet where like, you know, he could, he, he could make this trade work, really. Do you... First of all, there's sort of, I feel like there's some murmurings of, if we go back to GameStop, there was a decent amount on, well, as much as deep fucking value is out there with his story, like there must have been some real money that kind of, whether they actually got in through Wall Street bets or they were kind of just behind, there was some real money driving. And some people have said, oh, well, maybe he was involved. Uh, Bill Huang of Archigos was involved. Even then, and not that we're forensically analyzing this, but do you, I guess what I'm thinking is a lot of these moves are multiplied somehow, whether it's by algos that jump onto a trade or whatever else, or whether he might have been there in small size earlier and then some other funds may have latched onto the strategy, not coordinated, but just noticing what's going on. How much do you think this is at this stage a lone actor versus a potentially some sort of multiplicative effect. Well, in the case, in the case of Viacom and Discovery, he clearly had massive exposure to the names. So I don't think you need to look for another name. Like, I mean, those stock prices reflect someone who took a huge position on the way up and then got completely unwound on the way down. So. In other words, it's perfectly plausible that it was just the one fund and it didn't, he didn't really need much. Like, there's enough you can do with the total return swap positioning and potentially any. Uh, I don't I mean, know. In, G, in GSX, it's like, you know, it's out there that there's, well, there's another fund that was like his, like his chief lieutenant. Okay. I started a fund that was in the press, but like, no one's really, really focused on it as much. You know, Tiger Global, the main flagship, supposedly had a few million shares of GSX. So it's absurd to think that these people don't talk to each other. So right, they're they're all part of like essentially the same private club. And you see, like you know, like there was an interview with Julian Robertson with Bloomberg was asking him questions, and he's like, "Yeah, you know, I talked to him a couple of days ago. I had lunch with him like two months ago. Like that looks like it's a active family over there." I mean, fine, there's nothing wrong with that, but it does become, I think it's not surprising that people would assume that 
there is a coordinated manipulation. I mean, the short sellers are obviously like, they're now like bloody murder. Here you go. Like if I was short GSX and someone is using, supposedly he was pledging the same collateral to seven prime brokers to circumvent, you know, leverage restrictions. If I was short GSX and I suffered massive losses and like four months later, you know, the company files for bankruptcy or something, but whatever, hypothetical scenario, or the stock comes back down 90%. And in the interim, like a bunch of funds got together and they said, they're going to put me out of business because I have a fundamental thesis and we don't care about that fundamental thesis. We're going to blow that thesis up just because we can. And we have way more firepower than these guys have. And that's our plan. And we can't keep a stock up there because eventually someone has to buy it from you. But in the interim, to play this game in a name that's very small, relatively speaking, you know, and I mean, and like the numbers being thrown around here, right? Like five times to like a hundred billion portfolio potentially for him. And these, I mean, like you're talking about potentially several hundred billion in notional market exposure. Like these guys can play around with a billion dollars, two billion dollars together, right? It's not going to devastate one of their books by itself. So it's completely reasonable to believe that they're playing that game. And like, why wouldn't you want to file a lawsuit uh, against them for the losses you incurred? Because they're essentially coordinated on a position to cause you to lose money because you've actually kind of disclosed that here's your fundamental thesis and here's why you're in it. And they don't care about it. And they're just, they're just getting together to put you out of business. And they, they don't have a fundamental thesis at all. Maybe they even agree with you fundamentally, but they've, they've concluded it's irrelevant because this is what they can do in the short run. So I think that question out exists. And then there is the Viacom scenario, which is like the other one, where the other extreme, where it seems like maybe he liked it, maybe or maybe he just thought it was like a Bed of Bath and Beyond type thing and 10, 15, 20% short, Paramount Plus is launching and that's enough you know, to completely re-rate the stock back to where it was long before, like, you know, two, two years ago, $50, $60 or whatever. You know, with some of these names like Live Nation and the airlines trading in enterprise values that exceed the pre-COVID levels. Right. Like, he, he probably, like, had a fundamental argument to support that, right? Like, it, like you can be like this, this, and this are doing that. So why can't this? And by the way, like debt has been an issue for these guys, and COVID has kind of made that like you know less relevant. So AMC being an example, I mean even GameStop to a degree, we've discussed this. Like COVID, even though their business accelerated its top line decline, COVID has had financial benefits to that business from pre-COVID. That like they're almost perversions. You don't have to spend on this. You don't have to spend on that. You've reduced expenses, expenses, you know, rent, and like you, you've had a significant reduction in, in interest expense. And you know where your debt trades, you've been opportunistically able to improve your balance sheet. So if you were on the verge of going bankrupt, like you actually had, like you benefited from COVID. I mean, I'm not saying that that GameStop was right there, but GameStop was. GameStop was in a balance sheet situation where the previous year they burned a shit ton of cash. This year they they probably had like what the last two quarters, 30, 40% revenue decline and on, from a cash flow basis, a huge improvement. Now, a huge improvement in an unsustainable manner in many respects, because you're not buying inventory and you're not paying rent. But 
nonetheless, it buys them a lot of time. Yeah. Nonetheless, what was crowding out equity value is less of a concern, and that allows equity value in many cases that was optional. I mean, I always just tell anybody who talked about me you know, at AMC stock, I'm like, it's it's an option. It's a five billion dollar EV company where the, where the market cap is like under six hundred million, mm-hmm. right? And now you have the exact opposite scenario. You have a twelve billion dollar EV company, and the market cap is like seven seven billion. So, like you, it's it, it's it's a wild change that has occurred, and it's occurred in a ton of share issuance, but but also the stock is up five six x. But like, I mean, there's people who have made arguments that like, I think they'll do this much in EBITDA this year. I mean, just like the argument, like I think GoPro is a much better version of all this because they're financially way healthier and they're, they're actually trans, like their transformation is along the lines of the business. But like, it's definitely like a COVID related dynamic that we're focusing on that's really boosting free cash flow for 20, for the end of last, last six months of last year and for the next 12 months of this year. So a different version of that has played out with these names. So look, I mean, yes, I think what we what, what we can see here is that someone was manipulating these stocks. I don't know what his exit strategy was. Well, that right? was the that was the obvious question too. Is edit, all these plays are sort of Icarus like, right? You just you keep going until you get too close to the sun. Where at some point you have to leave the table. And with Wall Street bets, it was in GameStop. There was diamond hands and like there was a little bit of a known and acknowledged irrationality there and even with deep value he was kind of i feel like he became a poster boy so he sold enough that he you know he still has millions in cash or whatever but he kind of he's i mean he's almost literally the cat jordan belford in the movie right he can't go home but in this case with professionals you would think that they would leave themselves an exit strategy and that obviously, whether it was that Viacom issued shares or whatever else, like they obviously didn't leave themselves much room to maneuver there. Yeah, that was the jig is up, right? Yeah. You didn't have that moment in, in GameStop. And by the way, we don't know. Look, it's entirely possible. We find out that there's a der- derivative dynamic from a, t- a total return swap standpoint that has factored into GameStop as well. Maybe somebody else was doing this on a smaller scale. And Bill Wong is like the the super whale. What was the guy who used to buy the options in, in London? What do they call him? 50 Cent? The, you talking about the JP Morgan whale or somebody else? No, the 50 Cent trader. Didn't, I mean, like, you know, like this like hidden mystery big buyer. So in, his, in this case, I mean, we know that from the blocks that were liquidated and the fact that like, like the prime brokers have come out and said we're liquidating him. That this game was being played, like I think it was thirty-two percent. They, they said in, in with respect to Viacom, and like twenty-eight percent in Discovery. So those are massive positions in those names without filings, and like you don't get liquidated buying those names at forty when they drop to seventy. And Viacom went from forty to hundred, back to forty-five in in like forty-five days, right, or sixty days, or whatever you want to call it. So when if, like if he if he was being forced liquidated in those names, and, and and there's been speculation that like the rest of his book had to be uh, SaaS heavy, growth heavy, or whatever, and then like he took a hit there, and then like this just compounded it once Viacom set this off in motion. But we can't prove that. What we can prove, what we know for a fact, is that he wasn't able to hold these things back to where they were trading just 60 days ago. So if that's the case, either 
he had duped the brokers on leverage and they forced him down once like there was like a let's call it a volatility triggering event with a bunch of names that he owned that were correlated and they all forced him down at the same time and that just that blew up the trade because you were buying the same names on the way up and they all know that it's i don't think it's a secret to them to look around and see you know who are the big holders of biocom figure out that they all have swaps with him and here's what the deal is and if he only had collateral he was using the same collateral for that leverage. He couldn't withstand any volatility like that. So that's one very plausible explanation to it. But he definitely seemed to be focused on whatever happened in January and playing that game for himself. And maybe this is where I kind of get into the philosophical nature of all of this. For somebody who's made money doing what he's doing, and I don't know much about him personally. Robertson spoke very highly of him as, as a human, right? Which I don't think many people are, are focused on right now. But it, it does appear that like he's been very successful to be you know where he's at, you know like I mean he had an incident uh, with alleged manipulation and, and these things where he paid a fine and whatnot. So there is a bit he of a got, history of uh, right. He got banned in Hong Kong trading, I think it was in yeah, 2012. In Hong Kong, and like the, the tiger unwinded and turned into a family office. But like yeah, he'd done really well as a club from like 2000 to 2012. And my understanding was he was like a fang slash like, you know, riding the wave for the last decade. So, and you never heard, like, this is, this is a kind of a legendary fortune amassed behind the scenes. Like you've never heard of him. No one was talking about him. And it's not like somebody's out there who's putting his own trade. So like, was it quantitative? Was something that, did the machines just tell him to start buying this and he just followed the machines and he's running a strategy? We don't know. But I do think that you can have a theory that like, once like doing the work, isn't translating it anymore into like what's moving stock prices. And if you look at what was happening in December and January, maybe he was just like, fuck it. If these stocks can move like this, I, you know, why can't, why, like, I would look at, at the, the names he picked as better versions of everything that happened in January. Right. Right. Yeah. There's more of a story there. GSX aside, there's more of a story there. There's yeah, more well, GSX notable in the sense that like he can, he can squeeze and like, maybe that was just like somebody in his office doing whatever he was doing there. And they were focused on that. And maybe that had, maybe that has something of Asian ties as well. I understand those guys invest a lot in Asia. So maybe that was just personal, who knows, but the other three, no one's going to argue with you that buying them, that you like, you had a high margin of safety from where everything else was in the market. Yeah. But I think what's also interesting here is to think about, so like when you look at fundamental after effects obviously if you owned viacom you've had a weird few months or whatever but viacom was able to issue shares so that's like a real and obviously amc has done that as you mentioned earlier those are real effects that's real economic money is going into these companies and they're going to be able to in viacom's case i guess it's probably just deleveraging and giving them a little more flexibility but that's one real effect but i also wonder how much more of this there's out there? Because obviously there's a lot of leverage in the markets, but there's maybe not in such an exaggerated, concentrated effect. But that's, I guess, what you wonder about is as we have this shifting environment where we're going back to in the next few months, hopefully a much more open economy, how much of this I've over extrapolated for the last few months or I've over bet in this? Are there going to be more repercussions? Are there going to be more echoes of this? In the, I mean, we're still at all-time highs in the S&P. NASDAQ is a little bit off, but it's still up for the year. 
after a crazy 2020. Look, shit like this causes chaos, all right? I mean, you can definitely see the reflections of a disregard of risk, okay? And it'll permeate into your own trading. Like, I mean, I had a miserable time uh, last week when all this was happening because you're just like, you know, I'm going to trade this Twitter. I'm going to do whatever. And a nuclear bomb goes off in the market, essentially speaking. And if you look at what happened in the market on Thursday and Friday, as Viacom and these names were being liquidated, you have like an absolute like barnstorming rally in like the Dow, which always seems to happen whenever there's one of these weird blowups, right? Markets don't go down when there's one of these like weird risk blowups. Like all of a sudden people just buy, you know, Home Depot, Lowe's, Coca-Cola, Target, whatever. Exxon. Exactly. And like we saw, we've seen the incidences like this, you know, there was that, there was like those weird degrossing dynamics also when you, when you had GameStop blow up. So I think it does cause in the very short term, wild price gyrations, which I think uh, make investing more challenging. The trading, I mean, it's trading, like there's somebody who's going to be winning in, in, in these scenarios who... And the machines seem to be the best at it. Their, their ability to move from one thing to the next really quickly. You know, I mean, Home Depot has gone from 245 to 310 in like two and a half weeks. There's a lot of these moves where you can stick yourself to a fundamental reason like, and, and try to justify it to yourself. But at times, you're just like these factor rotations have gotten so violent under COVID that it becomes challenging, right? And we're also in this window now in the market where work from home is kind of done as an exciting trade. Like it's no longer work from home. It's like, it's got you like, you got to start now calling it hybrid work and digitization again and cloud. But at the same time, open up trade, you have, it's not going as fast as expected. We swung from it, like not going as slow as expected to it's going super fast to like Europe is still lagging. But you also mentally are not in the, like, even with cases that have spiked in places, you're not of the viewpoint that there's another lockdown because a lot of people are vaccinated. So you're like in this in-between zone where those a lot of those stocks have run a lot, but you also don't want to just go pile into like the SaaS names. Yes, they've pulled back some of them notably, some of them not as notably, but like I'm not going to get excited about buying 35, 40 times sales because it's no longer 60. I will say, I mean, I was pretty, I was like, there was, I got someone forwarded me that, that shit on PagerDuty with the grocery chain. And then like, I also actually got around to reading the the business at work Okta report. So there's been some examples where, like, I mean, last week I was tweeting about it and then like it bounced back a little bit on Thursday and Friday. Like a name like PD is is a name, like, I I would say it's not surprising that PagerDuty and Workday throughout this. I mean, Page Unity had its had its whatever you want to call it, arc invest related concentration, headwind. But I say workday hit 260 on Friday. You know, the highest it's really traded is a little bit over 270. So like there's some names, there's some like let's what do you, what you want to call it, uh, divergences happening where you can sit there and be like, oh, maybe I can own this, own buy and hold here again. I mean, there's been the back and forth on Twitter. I think all of us who are long Twitter are unsatisfied still with where it's trading. We expect more in the near run. But with the volatility in the market, it's not like, I mean, it's not like you can fault Twitter, right? Like if you're a Twitter, if you're a Twitter bull, 
the stock is trading slightly above, you know, where it was when it went into, uh, you know, I think we hit 66. So you could call it like 10% above where it was going into earnings in February, which was like the last week, the last, the last week of February. No, not the last week of February. Uh, February 9th or 10th. Yeah. Or whatever it was. Not, yeah. Well, I think the factor stuff is interesting. I was just, as you were talking, I was, I did my quarter review for myself and I saw the Russell 2000 has been, so just for small caps, has been up. I think the numbers are like 25%, 18%, 15 or 16%, and 12, more than 12% in the last four quarters. The value IWN, which is the value ETF, was up close to 30% in Q4 and then just up 22 or 23% in Q1. So yeah, there's like some violent, which happens after a recession, except the recession was so, in from the yeah, market perspective, well, I mean, so like short. You can't call it a recession. Like, yeah. Uh, it, was, it was more, it's, it's, it's much better described as a, a disruption, which was immediately met with a response to like eliminate the disruption immediately, at least from a financial market standpoint. Totally. And that's what I, so I guess that's, that's what makes, I think, that's like the the ocean levels are rising and that makes it harder to tell what's a tidal movement and what's just a storm to I like labor. Description. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'd nail the metaphor, but you know what, like that's underneath yeah. all of this. And that's what you were saying with Viacom or with a couple of those other names earlier is like, you look, you can draw comps that make sense. And then the market says, all right, we're going to fill that whole comp gap or a Bill Wang comes along and sees an opportunity to corner a play or whatever else. I feel like that's what makes it so hard to, not hard, but you have to be thoughtful. It's like you're in this, you have a pool or whatever, and it's collecting water. And that's like the natural, you know, when it rains and then when it's hot, it evaporates some. And when it rains, you know, you collect it. But all of a sudden, the volume starts really going up and, and you think that like it's coming from the rain, but you don't know that like your next door neighbor has like just hooked a faucet up and he's pumping water in. So and I, I think that's where, yeah, these types of things where it's hard, like what, what, what do you ascribe to the, what's natural? And I think that's where like you get into uh, Bill Wang playing this game here where like if he saw what was going on in the market, it's not like many people didn't. The willingness to to suspend, you know, what you were really focusing on before, because like it's just became so arbitrary. You don't really, you didn't know what was moving what to do what he was doing, where he's just like, I can buy these names, like, and they're better, and I should do even better than 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 this crowd. And once they start going up, people will follow me, and yeah. that's all I need. But in contrast to the GameStop situation, this one, like, it ended with like, hey you were just manipulating these names and you had a lot of people criticize the leverage and like, like, well, how can you really criticize leverage? I mean, it's really turned out that most hedge funds are running obscenely gross leverage strategies behind the scene. And as someone who like, you know, has traded in the past with no leverage and you're just like on cash on cash uh, measured returns. I mean, you have to have some margin available when you're shorting, but, the dynamic of like hearing that somebody is getting six times leverage on several billion is just is is is, is like well all right so he was up forty percent what the fuck does that mean I've done day trading leverage at four to one time many times and 
been blown up in trades, you know, by minimal moves. So if he's if you're gonna trade volatility where you're like being that aggressive on a large sum of managed money versus your own personal speculation, you do wonder what it takes to really generate the alpha. I mean, when you hear that this X, Y, and Z fund was up like 35% for the last four years, and it turns out that they're four or five times leverage or three or four times leverage, that's not that fucking impressive. But then why don't you just buy an index fund? Yeah, and you can lever up, you know, they're the 3X funds or 3X bulls or yeah, whatever. Yeah, because you're always, you're always one moment away from like a degrossing type of pretend. Like that's where you get into the fact that all these things become risk management operations on figuring out why what just happened can't happen. With, with the amount of money that, that he had in these names, there had to have been some serious like behind the scenes thinking of like what blows us up. Unless it was so bad as that, well, I'm going to do this trade this way and I'm going to get leverage from everybody on the street because it's COVID and they're just giving away money and they're not paying attention. And then like, and that's where you enter this kind of like, I mean, I don't even know if like, you know, there's these agreements with respect to this. Like if he's pledging that collateral, I would think that he, w- he would have to, in best intentions, to signal to them that like that collateral hasn't been pledged to somebody else because that would be fraud. So, I mean, I, there's been news with respect to the fact that, I mean, at least the brokers are alleging. But then the brokers, you look at them and you're like, how can, you know, people have been joking all last week about Goldman getting out. Like supposedly the brokers did a call on Wednesday night and agreed to hold the line and slowly, <laughs> slowly unwind this, which in of itself, by the way, you wonder if that's market manipulation. If I'm buying Viacom shares on Thursday and four brokers, four prime brokers did a conference call and said, look, this guy can't hold this position. He's over levered with all of us. But if one of us tries to sell this immediately, it cascades and someone takes a loss. So let's slowly unwind this and hope that there's enough people in the market who continue to trade the stock on a daily basis and just think that like they're getting a bargain on the way down. That would be material information that would need to be disclosed. Wouldn't you think? Like if all of you guys get together and you know that 40% of Viacom is held by someone who's eight, you know, seven, eight, ten times geared, and he can't hold it any longer because he doesn't have the collateral to hold that size of the position in Viacom. Yeah. I mean, well, and that's also where from the company perspective, if you're an AMC or you're a Viacom and you issue shares, do you play dumb or do you actually genuinely not know what's going on or? Oh, you play dumb. I mean, I think that's, I think with like, if it's beneficial to your business and improving your business health, I don't think, I think what's her name still running the show there, Sherry. I mean, remember in Viacom's case, she controls the voting shares. Like you can't take over Viacom without, economically she controls very little, but she controls 80% of the voting rights, I think. So that's a situation where you're just like, we'll take the money. Right. Like, it's like you basically just cut you, like you did her a favor, you know? So improving everything that they're trying to do position and strategy wise. But yeah, I mean, I think the overall takeaway here is I think what has happened and particularly with GameStop question marks lingering after this, you can't not look at what just happened now and not, not have question marks about January because one fund just manipulated four stocks. That's, that's beyond beyond a shadow of a doubt. How it was executed manipulation-wise is that 
it would appear he achieved degrees of leverage that were way above normal or accepted by the brokers in theory. But the counter argument here is that when the Fed does what it does, like how do asset prices go up? When, when everybody talks about, well, you know, you don't, don't fight the Fed and zero rates and all these programs. Well, they're useless unless the prime brokers give you more money to invest in the markets. Part of their strategy working is that you can dial up the leverage. And from the prime broker's perspective, it's because they have access to capital, they may as well get a return on it by lending it out through the leverage, essentially. Okay, another argument there is that these guys don't make money anymore off of playing commissions. So if you're not doing these derivative transactions or facilitating high degrees of leverage, you know, margin lending and structured products is the name of the game. There's no money anymore in plain vanilla paying me on trades. So by, by taking that away, you've essentially pushed them all into being more aggressive in another area to make money. Until somebody, you know, loses money again and you like you hear exactly what happened. And like, you know, all the regulators put out their statements. We're monitoring this very closely. But our, like I don't think anyone takes that seriously anymore. You know? When you're monitoring this very closely, like we just watched four names go up two, three X in a short time period and completely collapse. And it was a complete shit show. And there's a lot of people in the market who just look at this and say, you're hurting the integrity of the stock market. And like what you focused on on GameStop was exactly like you hold all these hearings and you ask 50 questions about naked short selling. And here's what's going on behind the scenes is they're targeting short sellers and they're taking excess liquidity to inflate asset prices and you know, accumulate wealth for themselves. So investigate that, assholes. You know, I mean, like, <laughs> like really, like the narrative is so... 180 degrees from what has been sold to us. And they don't seem to really want to focus on what's really going on, which is just unfortunate because if you see what's going on here, like it's, it's much more dangerous. It really makes you like when you trade, it just like, it makes you be like, well, am I getting the same uh, fair treatment as everybody else? Like, am I like, is this a level playing field? And then we, we know that there is certain things that, quantitatively and, and, and uh, you know, high-speed frequency trading. And we've gone through all that where like someone has technological superior infrastructure and, you know, Citadel and Medallion Fund and, and whatever, they just make money. But the rest of it, like you kind of had some kind of pretty basic assumptions on what you're figuring out. And I think that like the last three months, you know, have, have ripped those to shreds. And I mean, I, we were joking about this because we were like, this is going to lead to a forced deleveraging. And I'm like, that would, be, that would require things to go down. You know, which nobody wants, seems ever. So, like, you've gotten to the point where you've encouraged that for forever. And you're like, well, like, so now the regulators are going to step in and say, hey, prime brokers, take everybody down like one turn of leverage. Okay. They'd be like, well, you know what that's going to do to the stock market. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's sort of a Stockholm syndrome for everybody. Or, yeah, uh, I mean, it's stuck like, here. like, it's like degross everyone's book. Okay. Well, I mean, everyone's book is, net long this much, that's a forced equity decline. So who, I mean, people do find ways to, to synthetically leverage and, and we just saw an example of it. That's where I think we, we'd like to know more because like I have a very hard time believing that with like a name like this and what was going on, 
they didn't all know what was going like like joke you know the prime brokers know where the bodies are buried always so when something like this happens or while viacom was going up as it was it was no secret to a couple trading desks why it was going up like when we think about these movies you know yo the dukes are trying to corner the, the frozen orange juice market right <laughs> i mean like it's the same thing in the background it's like yo bill wong's trying to corner viacom and if, if he's amassing that much because he, he can't acquire the company from the position he's holding. So it had to be something else. And like, uh, until you force him to come out and literally, you know, that's where you get into this uh, good Christian Julian Robinson response. Like, just get the guy to come out and be like, what were you doing? What was your strategy? Because if you look at the names he held, I don't think that there's anything for him to say other than my strategy was a more intelligent version of GameStop. Why are you criticizing me? Okay, but how did you get there? Well, you know, I figured out I could do it all myself. I didn't need Reddit. I just needed seven dumb prime brokers. I needed seven dwarfs to all lend me money on the same name. Yeah, well, they also ended up screwing him at the end of the day, but that, 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 is, that is the name of the game. But yeah, I mean, where do we go from here? I think it's a better question. I mean, I think we saw like the market seemed to be a little bit more sensible Thursday, Friday. And the whole time this was happening, I feel like, like we were saying, no man's land trading. Like you're in between work from home and open up and you added this, you, know, you sprinkled this on top where now you can look at a bunch of charts and be like, wait, this was all bullshit. I mean, by the way, these names are not alone. There's a lot of SPACs that look like the same way. Like how many charts are the, you know, upside down B from November to March? Yeah, lots. I mean, it's, it's- like, like, like FUBU. Okay. <laughs> Another Andrew, like, what is that thing? Down to 19? Like if you were like if you were sitting here debating it on the on the internet, and I mean I remember Shamath commenting on it, and like when it bounced back from like thirty to fifty for the second time, and it's like what like you know why would you why are you happy that the stock went up if you don't have anything around the business? And now look where it is. Like I don't think anybody's defending owning it down here. So there's a lot of names that fell in that category. I mean like I traded like some stocks recently which are just total garbage, and. Uh, I knew that I was trading total garbage, but like, you know, after I got out of this, this like where Bitcoin mine that I was in for two days and 30% down, I mean, that's still a better performance than my NFT, but <laughs> you know, like you understand when you get in, you know, when you got out and you lost money, you're like, yes, I deserve that. Right. But does this make like, you... You've been really cautious about shorting through the last year. I know you've made a couple short plays, but does this make you more cautious because there's more funny business or does this make you more interested because now it seems like maybe some of this will shake out? Look, if you, have a, if you understand that there's something really wrong with a business and you don't like it, you could argue that it's never been better to be a short seller. And you can also argue that part of the problem with the market right now is that, the, that, that enough people got to a point recently where they did not want to be fundamentally short anything. Forget the frauds. Like, just like, you know, I think this is slightly overvalued or I think this is a good business, but it's aggressively priced. Like, I still look at these names and software and let, let's go back to PagerDuty. Actually, that's the best one. PagerDuty's trading at like 11 times sales, 12, 11 to 12 times sales. And it's going to grow 30%. And it's got like close to 90% gross margins. That's my visibility on the next 12 months. And everything around it has incrementally turned positive. I don't know if you saw that like 
I mean, Ops Genie was like the only name in that Okta chart on integrations that turns out over the last, like, let's call it like the, the, the end line was one that actually stopped going up to the right flatlined and then like has a little bit of a dip at the very end of it. So, and meanwhile, PagerDuty is right there behind Atlassian proper and GitHub as far as top, it's number three out of the, uh, out of like, you know, those 15 names there, out of Datadog, out of New Relic, out of all those things, right? For customers who are using it within the, within the Okta platform. So when you see where, where they're positioned and you see that it's, it's that, you know, it's growing 30%. Yes, we understand it's not as super exciting and, and hasn't been, but like risk adjusted growth for the people in this space who essentially only focus on the top line, right? <laughs> Relative to what they're paying and like their perception of the size of the addressable market. If that's the case and I want to buy that name, fine. But if you're looking at that name there and then you go up the curve and like Twilio's at 27X and, you know, CrowdStrike and these at 30 and whatever, uh, all the way up to Cloudflare and, and some of the work from home infrastructure beneficiaries and security beneficiaries. And these names are 30, 40, 50 times sales. And I mean, like they may be growing, let's call it 50% faster or 30% faster or 25% faster. I can't really get excited. Like, I, I mean, yes. I mean, I know Captain Twilio will, will, will want to skin me alive to say anything <laughs> negative on Twilio. But like, you know, what's, what did Twilio do in revenue in the last, in the last year? Like, uh, organically. Was it 60 was the number? Or I don't have. No, no. What's the, to- what's the total revenue? Oh, like- 1.7 last year. Okay. So, and they've, they've picked up some things here and there. So, you know, 1.7 billion. And what's the market cap? 60? Yeah, just south of 60 right now, it looks like. Yeah, so like, you know, so 1.760, 30 times revenue trailing, right? 30 plus, yeah. Yeah, so like, I mean, to me, there's Workday, Salesforce, and whatever, you know, in the, let's say 20% revenue growth, but it's application software versus let's call it 50% plus telephony. And then, and this is where you get into it when I look at someone like PD and I'm just like, I mean, PD did like, you know, 215 million in revenue. So you did call it uh, seven to eight X, you're seven to eight X PD in sales and you're 25 X then in market cap, you know, at times, right? So there's these things that occur and like, and, and Twilio isn't even an egregious one. So like, there's a bunch where you're like, what are you paying up the, for? I'm not even questioning what you're paying up for. It's just like, what's the downside in this tape? Because we, we've seen some things, we've, we've seen some things really blow up, which was the crazy stuff. But the fundamentally growth names, growthy names, even like a Roku, Roku pulled back, you know, recently, but like, you now it's been bigger than a Twitter. And maybe some people think it should be down the road because they have a huge opportunity in targeted advertising uh, in homes that they're installed in, in in the United States. But like, I mean, Twitter is doing essentially, uh, you know, what is it? Uh, let's call it. It's on the three. It's it's three and a half times. Yeah, it's called three point seven. Yeah, three point seven times or so the uh, the platform revenue. And like, okay, maybe you're gonna grow a little bit faster, but like this guy's accelerating and. Well, you were just recently, you know, worth 
$10 billion more than them. So there's a lot of that stuff in the market that on top of all this nonsense where like you have to sift through names and be like, there's a Nicola and a Clovis and the Optinth SPAC and stuff with like a FUBU and whatever. And then on top of that, you've got your GameStops and Bed Bath and & Beyonds and now you're Viacom and like Baidu. Like I don't like, I, you know, I was having a conversation with a friend on it where we're just like, what do you do with the name? <laughs> you know, the stock went from 170 to 350 back to 170. It's now a little over 200. It's, it's had such a wild gyration in two months that like, what is relevant to your fundamental view? Like if you were of the view that it was sleepy and it was going to show signs of improving, and when you bought it at 170, that would translate into 230, 240, 250, but it went to 350 and you still hadn't sold. And then it comes back down to 170 and it turns out, by the way, nothing changed in the company. Don't you feel stupid? Right. But like that's where it gets into these things where because you're not forced to follow what's going on with the operational business and being able to tether it to the very short term swings in the price and try to translate like an opinion around that, you're essentially like you're at the fucking casino looking at the table and it's black or red or whatever, right? And you know, when it's when the streak is running, you're just complacent. And when it goes in the other direction, you're like, oh wait, you know, why you made money or why you lost money are inexplicable to you at the same time. Put it that way. And I think that is, I think that is a challenge because so you've got that pocket, and then you've got this thing like what we just we're, we're talking about, where you try to do like, you know, you take try to take a snowflake and a Roku and a Twilio and a workday and a Salesforce and a PagerDuty and, and slap them on a board on a spectrum and be like, I know these are all good businesses, you know. I know people like these businesses. And like this is where someone was making a comment recently where like they're saying something about fear-mongering in the financial news that COVID, that, that the end of COVID is the end of cloud. And it's like, no, I mean, come on. You know, nobody, nobody believes that. If there's a room filled with 100 people and I can tell you what, what 20 names they're all going to pick when I say, go pick me the 20, the 20 best uh, compounding the growth stocks that you want to own for the next decade. And they're all going to run to the same names, which goes back to what, what the market was like before this. You can't, like, you may not make money in any of those names, right? Like, if you think about Am- when people cite your Amazons and they cite your Netflixes, having been involved in Netflix on both sides, right? Like, these names were controversial for forever, you know? Like, there was always, I mean, we talked about Santos, Paul Santos on, on Seeking Alpha and Amazon. Like, there have been persistent bears up until I would say, I would call it like the caving of bearishness around Fang and SAS just seemed to almost happen unanimously overnight, like a year and a half ago. I feel like it might've been a tiny bit longer ago, but yeah, I mean, it was, I was. Yeah, but we had that scare, dude, in 2019 when like, I was, when I was shorting everything and I did once upon a time in tech uh, and you go back to like the Slack IPO and then we work like, I mean, we exited that we ended 19 with like people buying Apple and Microsoft and not willing to touch the SaaS and uh, startup mania. It was like, hey, this, this had gotten frothy. But no, I mean, I, I would say that I would say nobody was arguing about the future of software then at all. Like they all had, had embraced the narrative. But like COVID shifted this into like a point where I'm not going to argue with any of these guys that, that these businesses are, are not in good position from a business standpoint for most of them. But like an 18-year-old could probably agree with me on that. You don't need 
to have any market experience. Like they will be like, I, I own Twilio because of X, Y, and Z. And this is, I own CrowdStrike because of X, Y, and Z. And I own Roku because of X, Y, and Z. And for the most part, no, no, no one is making that, let's call it the, a counter, a counter argument that says, well, no, this is a horrible business, which, which we had at times with all those names, right? I mean, we talk about Netflix. I mean, I mean, even to this day, it still has a couple of guys who give it shit, but there was a, I mean, a protracted period of like, this is, this business model is going to fail. I mean, Tesla still has a little bit of that, but I think everyone's even past that with the, this business model is going to fail is like, now it's just like this business model will never be economically as reflective of what the market thinks it's doing. Or it's this business model is inferior to Facebook and Google and, and uh, Apple. And like, why is it, why is this business already in, in, in being anointed on the caliber of that? But yeah, we haven't, we haven't gone through a period where people have looked at these names and just concluded like people have invested in these names, seen them grow, and lost a ton of money. And that just kind of happened, right? So it's not really yet losses for many, but like if you were late to the party, I'm sure that there's losses out there of note now by now, because you had some monster drops in a very short time period. And by the way, this market, if you want an analog from a price performance standpoint, like what is mid-November to the end of January looks the same as November 99 to the end of January of 2000. And March of 2021 looks a hell of a lot like in the names <laughs> that were com complete spec and even like the popular growth stocks. March of 2020, February, March of 2021, you know, looks a lot like 2000. Even though we like are so resolute over like not making bubble comparisons because Chewy is not pets.com and you know DoorDash is not Cosmo. Oh, by the way, that was a that was a good one too, right? Deliveroo this week. Yep. Yep. They they not a strong debut for them on the And and by the way, like in there was a guy who asked about it. If you remember on Twitter, we both commented and like I was being told by several people in the space that like the Deliver Deliveroo IPO is gonna be a disaster. Because I was not following it closely, but I, the people who were were like, this is gonna be such crap. And if you noticed, your boy, Jitsen, <laughs> was like almost, it's almost like he was trolling them before they were listening because <laughs> he expected that. Like he was pretty active on Twitter with commentary that like he had to have been very strongly of the opinion that that IPO was not going to look good. And, and you had the Olo DoorDash too as well last week. Yeah, that 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 I think is more is potentially more interesting. But yeah, he said he came up with a couple hashtags, right? He said the bulldozer and the end is near, something like that. So yeah, I mean, you should respect that when the guy's. Uh, I mean, he has a great track record, and uh, I mean, I just saw those tweets before it listed, and I was like, "What is he talking about?" I mean, I had just talked to two guys the previous week who were just like. Deliveroo is going to be a, a debacle. And that's what I told that dude who asked about, like, I'm thinking about participating in Deliveroo. And I'm like, not to any particular knowledge, but here's like, you know, people don't like it who follow the space. Yeah. I mean, and that's, yeah, again, I, I guess that's the, I know it's cliche to, and I've probably brought it up before, the whole voting machine, weighing machine. Like, again, I think a lot of this is 
we're going to start, these stocks are going to have to start making weight a little bit and are going to, you know, and you never know when exactly, but at some point they're going to step on the scale and yeah. And then that's for your point to, you can grow revenue for X number of years, but the valuation is still going to settle out or you have these, the delivery space. There's, yeah, there's, def- there's definitely a class of investors who, who, who uh, like, I wouldn't say they don't believe that. Like they've just been through like a period where they haven't thought, had to think much about that. So like the, this just general view of like the SaaS guy tweeting the four, you know, this week in SaaS where the multiple is and, uh, you know, X, Y, and Z company grew 26% last quarter, but it moved to 28% this quarter, right? And growth accelerated and like the stock goes up and like that used to be like a celebration. Now you have like the, the stock, the stock is 50% off its highs and not budging, you know, when it reports. And you're kind of wondering what's the next catalyst. Yeah, you should assume that the market is pricing in everything that's being talked about on Twitter or on Seeking Alpha or anywhere else. And then it's a question of, all right, what's incrementally going to happen? And you can expect the market to extrapolate short term. And that's potentially where you can have a advantage, but in when it's magnified by an Archegos or whatever else. But yeah, I mean, I think there's assuming that things are I mean, that's the last thing anybody needed this year, right? I mean, with all the other stuff that was going on in the background, we didn't need to know that this was possible. And now we have to look at stock prices and wonder, do I own something that that, that someone is doing this in? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think that's that's what this threw into the mix. Because I, I just take a bunch of stock charts and overlay them with each other. And then like what, what those businesses do is essentially irrelevant. And you want to get back to the point of like, what is like that the stock price has had some degree of movement that can be tethered to what is going on in those businesses. And I think COVID, COVID to a degree, like we saw it with, on one extreme with Zoom. Somebody I saw a tweet yesterday was like, you know, what if like the lockdowns get worse? Again, I'm just saying maybe Zoom back to 500. And then he's like, why not? And I was like, and my response was just human nature. I was like, you're not like, people are not rushing back to get online to do Zoom calls. I mean, I was talking about this with uh, some people on Spaces where like I visited this boonie and, you know, the energy in the office and the dynamics of, of a startup is like, you know, something that hasn't been around in a while, right? I mean, and you see, when, you see it, when you see it in action, particularly with someone who's essentially been work from home for the equivalent of a decade, but like you had like a the regular day to day life, you're like, well, you know what? You can't create culture without this environment. You know, like there's a group over here eating so and so. There's some banter over there. Someone's working on a project. Two people drop into a room to have a call. Another person goes to somewhere else. And the other side of the office is working on something. Else. Like you know, like the, that energy. Like I mean, where, where does that come from if everybody's on Zoom? Yeah, and you're seeing the drumbeat of announcements from the big tech companies about and the banks about. September or whenever we're going to be expecting, you know, Amazon, I think said September, they're expecting people in the office. Yeah. It's definitely going to be a readjustment. It's definitely not. And I think from the government standpoint, it makes sense, right? Like you kind of want to encourage that because you don't want to have a commercial real estate disaster. Like if you, if you really allow them to walk away from such so much commercial property, 
that's not a good thing going forward. That's like a, that goes back to, I don't know if you, I did a, I hosted a space in the blip. Which, no, I think that one is one I missed. Okay. So like I was doing it, what would, what would, I was really annoyed with Marvel's like, Hey, the government's been really busy with like the blip and all, and everybody comes back issuing an ID card. I saw you tweet go. about that. Yeah. Yeah. So like we, like and a bunch of people pitched really wild theories on like, what would be the economic consequences of the blip, right? Because when you think about COVID and supply chain disruption, then we just had the Suez Canal and all the semiconductor stuff and all the things going on around the world that not enough attention in Marvel. By the way, there's a lot, it turns out on the internet, a lot of people from, I've written papers and posts, you know, that the microbiome in your stomach would be impacted, you know, and uh, the, the different things that would happen. Uh, if you wiped out half of living life on earth with a snap, but commercial real estate is like, like where you think about like, if if half people disappear in real estate in general, like that would be super deflationary, right? Like you'd have twice as much space. That's an easy one. Twice as much space for half the people. And like maintaining it would be a problem. You'd probably want to like knock shit down and let like nature replace the trees or whatever. But COVID is kind of like a mini, 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 mini. It's like the leftovers equivalent of that, where like so far, it seems like there's going to be a lot of casualties as far as the commercial market, where you permanently are going to have an oversupply in that space that it has to be worked through. And I think that like to, to soften the blow of that, yeah, there's a, like the exact opposite of what's going on in residential real estate, right? Where home ownership has kind of the that's kind of had a, a huge uptick under COVID is force some people back into the office because like that's innately deflationary, you know? I heard on public radio in Michigan, I, I don't think I listened to a full segment on it, but there was something like people are, sewer systems are not built for everybody to be working from home. And we're asking you, your personal wipes should not get flushed. And it's just like one of those. Oh, that's interesting. It's so you're like, saying that like the sewer systems in Michigan are getting screwed up because everyone's wiping wiping their asses and flushing it down the toilet at home. I didn't know if that they meant that's that or like maybe hand wipes. I'm not sure, but it doesn't. But yeah, like essentially they're not built for such volume because usually they're more balanced or whatever else. And so yeah. we so like. Again, it's not like biodegradable, another, and so it's clogging up. Yeah, it was like one of those, yeah, I mean, you're not, you know, obviously we've got infrastructure week and the broadband and a, a lot of things that you're sort of thinking about how to extend. But yeah, it's just, it's it's a silly example, but there are these real world shifting of the weights of things that, that force adjustments. All right, well, I think that's the thing that covers it. Yeah, I think when we're getting to the sewer system, that's a good place to wrap. Well, yeah, good stuff. This is an interesting, interesting times we're in. And uh, I, th- I think we'll be nice. Like we'll get more details on. It. But like, if it was not leverage, that if it was not breaking the law, I think it becomes an even more interesting debate. Because then, how many funds are capable of doing what, what he did? Yeah, I that that to me is it. As much as it, it it makes you wonder, like you said, what's really behind my name and what else what else could happen that causes this and how do you be careful around that or take advantage of that if you if you know something 
not normal happens, sort of like we were saying with arcs concentration, does that open up opportunities sometimes? Yeah, like what's the point of disclosures if I can do so much, if I can get, you know, 40% of the economic interest in a stock by, you know, doing a bunch of TRSs with all the prime brokers of the street. I mean, I, yeah, I guess like you have to be, like you have to have amassed a $10 billion equity fortune and be willing to just put it all on the line at that. But that also, like, is this really this legendary story of a guy who went from like 200 million to 10 billion in equity capital in the last eight or nine years? Because if he did, that's amazing. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's, I saw some good tweets from somebody about LST, I think, maybe long short yeah. trader, about like, what does this say about how he got to that point? And so, yeah, I think there's still this specific story, there's still a lot of chip or a lot of pieces. Yeah, to that come was out. the thing with Robertson. Like at the Bloomberg interview, he like really had nothing to say about that. Right. He was just like, great guy. I still talked to him. It reminded me of like that, that whole scene from uh, Claire and Present Danger, where the president's asked about his buddy who got, you know, murdered and was like cocaine ties. And Harrison Ford's advice is like, they ask you if he's your, it was your friend. You don't say no. You say he was a great friend. And you go, you go in the other direction. So like in this case, it was like, you know, like, do you talk? He's like, I saw him last week. You know, I talked to him yesterday. Right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's not like, but I mean, he's 88 years old, but like, he did like, I don't think in fairness to the reporter, I think the reporter was just like, wanted to be like, look, you want to understand how has this guy successfully grown his assets and like, you know, in comparison to a Warren Buffett or Steve Cohen, a very like aggressive trader from back in the day or, or Melvin Capital, where everyone kind of knows what he was doing for the last seven, eight years. What was the strategy being employed here? Yeah. All right. Well, we'll keep watching, see what happens and see how the damage. All right, dude. Enjoy. Repercussions. Thank you for listening to The Razor's Edge. Subscribe to this wherever you get your podcasts. Hit us up on Twitter at, at Daniel Shortman and at Akram's Razor with suggestions, requests, or anything else. We aim to publish this every Tuesday morning and love to hear from you. If you can share this with a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, we'd really be grateful, as that will help the podcast grow and improve. This has been a Shortman Studios production. Our theme song is Move On by Soquel. Thank you for listening and see you next week.